0: Hello everyone, welcome to the first episode of Sanartham, a first of its kind academic podcast series in the University of Delhi, launched by the Department of Economics, Hindu College. To all the young economists, strategic leaders and thinkers listening to us today, through this podcast, you learn how to make smarter, scalable choices in your businesses and in personal life. I'm your host Mehul Sehgar and today we have with us Dr. Dilip Saman, a senior academician and a behavioral economist from the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, joining us live from Toronto, Canada. In this podcast, Dr. Saman will talk about the emerging field of behavioral economics, its applications in public policy and will engage with his research title, Successfully scaled solutions need not be homogenous. We welcome you, sir.
1: Well, first of all, Mehul, thank you for inviting me. I think it's a great initiative that you're doing. A part of my own focus in my research is really translating the knowledge, uh, getting more people excited about the new field. uh, So this fits right into my own interests. So again, thank you for doing that.
0: To begin with, sir, can you help us understand what is the main focus area of behavioral economics?
1: The best way I'm going to describe this is by borrowing some language from a book that was published in 2008. The book is called Nudge, and it was written by uh, one of my dissertation uh, advisors, Richard Taylor uh, and Cass Sunstein. Uh, And the language that they use in the book is to make a distinction between uh, what they call econs and humans. So, for example, what, what's, what's an econ, right? Uh, right, Econs are fictitious creatures that live, I guess, on the pages of economics textbooks. We've uh, all read about them. They are rational. They are forward-looking. They can compute at the speed of light. They can formulate utility functions. They can optimize those functions. They care about well-being of themselves and not as much of others uh, they are ultimately focused on utility maximization or wealth creation they don't let, they don't let emotions come in the way but Mehul if you think back to all the people you know uh, I'll challenge you to find any one person who actually does all of that. So most of us, I think, are human. I'd, I'd say all of us are human. Our humans are different. You know, we do things like we donate to charity and fall in love, act impulsively and, and consume food that we know is not good for us and we procrastinate. And at some point in time, you, you think about this stuff and say, look, we've got this entire science of economics predicated on a whole bunch of assumptions about how humans behave. And we know that those assumptions aren't true. Uh, And so while the science is internally consistent, it's logical, it makes perfect sense, it doesn't represent humanity. And so it's not a a science of life. It's a science of econs. And I think that's the basic motivation of behavioral economics. It's to say, can we come up with a science of economics that is more representative of what real people do uh, and how real people act? in the central goal of my work, as well as many other uh, other people that I know of, right? So we start thinking about uh, th- this, this entire spectrum of human behavior. I guess one question that then pops up is, what does it actually mean to be human, right? And here's where the science of psychology and judgment and decision making starts playing a big role. I mean, we've had a rich tradition of research in those in those, uh, in those areas, uh, we've learned a lot of things. In fact, we know a heck of a lot about how people behave. But I guess there's three or four sort of central things that jump out. I think this whole notion of context dependence is a very important uh, assumption. Keep in mind, in economics, when we talk about utilities of objects, we only refer to features of the object, right? So if you're doing sort of a standard utility function for a product, for example, we talk about the utility that you get from the attributes and from the price and so on and so forth, right? But we know that the value of products changes with time. So in fact, Even economics says that there is place utility and time utility and so on and so forth. But we don't put that in our utility functions, right? And and, and so so I think it's really important to start building that. And we know that context changes how people behave. Uh, We know that procrastination is a central theme of human behavior. Uh, And that's important because at the end of the day, as policymakers, when we see people doing things that they shouldn't be doing or alternately not doing things that we think they should be doing, our implicit first reaction is maybe they don't know what the right thing to do is. And so we spent time and energy communicating and persuading and giving people information. Uh, And that's perhaps not what they're looking for. Um, They just just need help getting things done, right? So uh, in Canada, for example, 10 years ago, we had a national task force on financial well-being. And it came to the conclusion, uh, not surprisingly, that a lot of Canadians aren't making optimal choices when it comes to retirement planning or saving and budgeting and so on and so forth, right? And so the government at that point in time invested a lot of money in a financial literacy program. Well, let's teach people what they should do. And I think financial literacy is interesting, it's important, uh, but that wasn't the sole problem. Like a a lot of people knew they should be saving for retirement, right? They just weren't doing it. And, And so interventions to help people do stuff, I think become important. So that's not the sort of key feature of behavioral economics approaches to policy as compared to traditional. In traditional, we just say, tell people what to do when they do it. Behavioral says, no, it's it's often not the case, right? And then the whole notion of the status quo, right? So I'm actually an engineer by training. So one of the things we'll we get to is that I'm, my first degree is not in economics at all, right? I'm an engineer. And in engineering, especially mechanical, one of the big things we learn about, and I'm sure everyone learns about in school, is the... Is the laws of motion, right? And I think the laws of motion apply to human behavior perfectly. So objects at rest continue being at rest, objects in motion continue in motion. That's habit in terms of the human world. The objects at rest remaining at rest is basically the status quo bias, right? The idea that people don't do things unless they have to do things. Right? So let me give you a simple example of that, which, which again makes no sense from an e- economics perspective, right? You look at data in the United States on retirement savings, and, and a few things start jumping at you. So the first thing is, you know, a lot of people open accounts at age 22, 23, when they first join a job. And this will happen to you when you, when you start your first full-time job. You know, you'll sit with the HR department. They will basically give you a whole bunch of forms which you need to fill. One of the forms will be like a retirement account. Okay, now, at age 23, you're thinking like, this is like 40 years away. Why you need to make a decision? And so a lot of people choose not to choose at all. They just kind of say, forget it. I'll think about it later, right? There are some that choose, right? So there's there some that will say, well, what do other people do? And so HR says, well, typically everybody sets aside X percent. And so, so they'll open an account, right? Now, fast forward to 15 or 20 years later, you're now 40 years old. A lot of things have happened in your life. You've, you know, some people have gotten married, they've changed careers, they have children, uh, the economy looks different, you had a pandemic. I mean, lots of things have changed in the world. And you would imagine, as, as rational markets would tell you, that as more information has now become available, your, your retirement portfolio will look different. now, right? It turns out, for a lot of people, there is no difference. Like Most people don't change a thing over 10 or 15 years, right? And, and, and sometimes that not changing a thing is good, but sometimes it's not, right? And, and, and so uh, why does that happen? That happens because they don't need to change it, right? So at the end of every year, there is no compulsion on you to rebalance your portfolio or change your investment decision. Because if you do nothing, nothing happens. OK, so that's a classic status quo example. Uh, people choose the path of least resistance. So uh, if you can imagine a little intervention where at the end of every year, as you log into your HR account or whatever else, a screen pops up and says, it's time to rebalance your portfolio. And unless you do it, you're not going to get paid next year. Okay? Now, there's, there's lots of issues with doing this, but, but suppose this happens, right? Now you changed the status quo now the status quo is you have to at least look at the damn thing so that you can continue getting salaries, right? And my prediction would be if we could just do that, people are much more likely to get in. So oftentimes the the constraint to behavior is just starting, right? Like uh, this is true with homework. This is true with class projects. This is true with all kinds of things. Once you start, things happen, Uh, but there's a massive starting problem, right? And again, Economics has nothing to say about this, uh, because at the end of the day, economists, especially economists in policy roles, have, have a standard set of tools at their disposal, right? They, they look at monetary tools, uh, incentives, call them, or subsidies, or, uh, or discounts, or whatever else, and they will look at regulatory constraint tools, like legislation to say, you must file taxes by such and such a date, or... You know, you must, as a company, do the following things to be compliant with the law, right? And so those are the two tools that we often use. And if those tools don't work in policy, uh, our belief is that people don't know about that. So then we give information to people. Uh, but, but I think we need to change all of that. I think we need to, we need to recognize that... A marketplace is made of humans. It's not made of econs. Uh, A country is a collection of humans and not econs, right? And so just passing a law doesn't mean that people will comply with it. Just creating an incentive doesn't mean that people are going to do what you want them to do because people's motivations are different. People's actions are different. The way people perceive a problem is different. And, And so, you know, the classic economics word for that is heterogeneity, right? We have to respect heterogeneity, right? Everybody's different. And I think that's something that our policymakers all across the world have been slow to embrace, right? And they've been slow to embrace that because the science of economics, the traditional economics has been at the forefront, like our key policymakers are economists, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Except for the fact that as the world is becoming more and more complex, uh, we're actually seeing people behaving more and more like humans and not as econs. So, so, So that's what I think, the need for a behavioral understanding is, is going to play a bigger role, right? Uh, I'm going to say just one more thing and then we can move on to other stuff, right? And, and, and that thing has to do with the book I mentioned earlier, uh, Nudge. Uh, Richard and, and Cass did a wonderful job collecting a lot of interesting anecdotes, highlighting the fact that people don't behave the way that they should behave. And, and a lot has been written after that book and after Danny Kahneman's book about characterizing behavioral economics as a study of human irrationality. And I wanna just caution everybody against that, right? Because you know what, like just because people don't obey the laws of economics doesn't like make them like, you know, irrational in a negative way, right? The the problem with the word irrationality is it, it connotes negativity. It suggests that people are making a mistake, right? And I don't think it's a mistake. Like, I mean, you know, people are people, right? Like, y- you, you can't, like, train an elephant to become like a mouse. It's just not going to happen. So everybody's going to behave the way that they're conditioned to behave, right? I think our models of studying human behavior are wrong. So, so that's one. And I think to expect people to behave like economic agents, in my opinion, is a much bigger form of irrationality. Right? I think that's the one we've got to be careful of. Right? So, so we just finished a large project uh, in Mexico uh, on, on pensions. And you know it's a very complex system. I'm not going to get into any details. But there are, there are some issues with people needing to make voluntary contributions to meet their financial needs when they retire. Uh, and, and of course, this is a classic behavioral problem because there's a mandatory component. And if you are already getting part of your salary deducted, then most people think, well, you know what, I already have a pension contribution, right? So a lot of people aren't going into the details of what percent and how much do I need, right? And, and so nobody makes voluntary, cont- well, not nobody, but m- most people don't make voluntary contributions, right? But here's the interesting thing. When, when you point out to the people that designed the program that citizens don't realize this, they would often say things such as, oh, but, you know, on the prospectus, it says on page 62." Uh, that they should make these contributions. Like uh, who reads page 62 of a prospectus? Like who even reads page one, right? And, and, and so I think those, those are the kinds of things we have to be careful about, right? Is as you design things for citizens, we need to assume that they will not read information. We need to assume that they will forget to do things. We need to assume that they will procrastinate. Uh, and, and unless we build all of those human features into our programs and our policy and into into you know products that we design i think we're going to keep running into the same kind of problem so thank you sir for that
0: you also mentioned about popular nudges so one or two popular nudges
1: from your end so, so, so there's a lot i mean i've been involved in a few and i think sort of some of my favorite ones were work that i did in you know in india and thailand a number of years back it was a small scale study we were trying to get uh, people, you know, this was back in like primarily the cash economy, pre-Aadhaar, pre-electronic transfer of funds days. So m- most people in the rural parts of the country, as you know, dealt in cash. I mean, it's, a lot still do, right? Um, and a lot of these people kind of, you know, were getting enough that they could save a little bit. But if it was in cash and it was sitting with you, you know, people tend to not save it, right? And so we want to see how to encourage people to do it and again here's an interesting story of how information alone doesn't help right so we went to all these villages we we went with like a a banker and the banker would sit with the families and help them draw out a budget and say you know see you could save 30 rupees or 40 rupees uh, every week and everybody nods and, and they agree uh, and then the banker comes back after six months and nobody saved a thing right uh, because again it's easy to spend so so again keep in mind this was before even like the you know the bank branch network in India had even penetrated to the villages, right? So we're talking about like uh, 15 years ago. And, and, and so, uh, so one simple intervention that I had was based on some of my early work in mental accounting, where we said, you know, if you physically segregate money, it is more likely to be used for the purpose for which it is earmarked, right? So you know, what I would do is I'd actually go or one of my, my assistants would go with the banker. And when they wrote out a budget for the family and said, you could save 40 rupees a week, I would actually give them an envelope with the word bachat written on it, right? And when they got, the, when they got their salary, I'd, I'd actually be there. I would put 40 rupees in the envelope, lick it, seal it and say, try to save this, okay? Now it became easy. Okay, because for them to, to now spend that money became a positive action. They had to break the envelope, they had to tear it open, right? And the economists will say, well, that's an extra transaction cost. Like, but it's like that tiny, right? So, so with that little tiny uh, transaction cost, you can actually bump up savings rates dramatically, right? So, so then we did other things. We put you know, photographs of the children on the envelope because then every time they felt like opening it, they would see the photos, uh, and they would get reminded of wh- why they were saving. So, so those are some really simple, low-cost interventions. But yeah, I mean, to some of the other ones, I mean, uh, so, some of the more recent work we've done is in the area of organ donation. We, we want people to donate organs, but our processes for doing so are so complex. So we, we follow something called prompted choice, just asking people as they're leaving a government office, would you consider being an organ donor? Just, just asking them, right? Uh, and making the process easy has a massive uh, effect on, on organ donation, right? Uh, you talked about opt-in, opt-out, similar story, right? Like defaulting people into pension plans and letting them opt out has a big effect. Framing of information. So my colleague Tanjim Hussain uh, did some really interesting experiments in a factory uh, in, in China, where every worker was given like a Productivity bonus, but, but the way it was framed was different, right? So half of the people were told, this is your current productivity level. If you increase it to this new level, I will give you the extra 320 RMB, right? The other half were told that you're going to get an extra 320 RMB, but if you fail to reach that level, then you will lose that 320 RMB, right? So the so same incentive in one case framed as a gain, other uh, case framed as a loss. There's about a two percentage point increase in productivity. Right now you say, well, this is not huge, okay. But if you look at two percentage of a country like China or India, that's millions of dollars, right? And and so I think these are the kinds of interesting interventions which help us see that there is something to understanding human behavior uh,
0: that goes beyond your traditional instruments. That's interesting, sir. So, we, we understand that humans are lazy and not rational, and nudges can be used to bring productivity out of the things. But this actually brings me to my next question Are there any instances of nudging failing? And any learning how to out of it about the quality of nudging creation?
1: So, lots. I mean, I, I could spend the entire day talking about it. So, so, lots of examples of nudges failing. Right. Like I and some of my colleagues are actually in the process of writing a book on this. Um, It's called, uh, you know, behavioral science in the wild. Uh, And it precisely talks about this issue.
0: Uh, And I
1: think there are a few underlying reasons. I guess there's the obvious ones, which is we have to take a close look at how we decide to choose a particular nudge in a particular situation right? And, and, and I'll, I'll give you a metaphor for this. Right, So think about shopping for clothes. Okay? You can do one of two things. You can go to your local clothes store and look through the racks and find something that you think is going to best fit you. Or you can go to a tailor. Okay? Going to a tailor is usually more expensive. It's a bit longer. Uh, there's a lot of steps on the way. You've got to go for a fitting and a trial and all of that stuff, right? Whereas if, if you can go to the store, you can walk out with a pair of pants or a jacket like in, in one hour, right? Uh, but the problem is it doesn't fit perfectly. Uh, and I think this is the issue with how people choose interventions, right? So, for example, you are, you know, the whole opt-in, opt-out story, right? Um, so, so there was a famous paper in 2003 uh, published in Science that compared a bunch of European countries on implied organ donation concentrates and... If you look at the data from that paper there's about you know half the European countries have like really high organ organ donation concentrates the other ones have really low Uh, and you look at it and say well what's going on it turns out it's because some countries have an opt-in process where you have to actually do something to become an organ donor uh, and other countries have an opt-out process where it is assumed that you're an organ donor so far so good okay a lot of countries looked at that piece of data and said okay we should do the same thing with our organ donation systems right so uh, most recently uk converted from an opt-in to an opt-out uh, before that wales about four or five years ago had converted but interestingly wales last year reversed their decision right they declared that this whole change from opt-in to opt-out had not worked so you look at this thing and say well What's going on, right? And and it's a simple answer, which is the fact that organ donation, unlike you know uh, opening your retirement account or, uh, or buying a computer, uh, it's a two-stage process involving two agents. All right? So the way it works is, I Dilip have to consent to be a donor, and then after I die, my family has to consent to my organs being used. So that, so there's two agents, right? And if you opt, if I opt in, if I actively go in, and sign up to be an organ donor, the chances that I'm going to speak to my family about this are very high. I'm going to tell my children, look, I've, this, here's what I've done. Those are my wishes. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, if I become a, a donor by failure to opt out, what are the chances that I will even speak to my family? Like close to zero. Right. And if that happens after I pass away, uh, my family isn't going to know what my wishes are. Okay, So the moment you, you take a finding that works well in one context and try and translate that to another context, it's a slightly different context, right? We're looking at a different dependent measure in this case. Uh, the results change completely. So, so we've actually found that if, if people opt in, the likelihood of that registration converting to an actual organ donation is very high. If it's a failure to opt out, then that percent is very low, right? Why did this happen? Because of what I call shopping in a nut store, right? Like somebody just went, and I'm not saying this is what happened in Wales and UK, but, but in general, this happens a lot. If somebody says, well, let me look at what's published. Uh, ah, you know, uh, Johnson and, and, and uh, Goldstein found that opt-in versus opt-out makes a difference. So I'm going to use it, right? But it makes a difference to something else, not to what you want. So, so I think that's the issue is oftentimes we borrow ideas from a different uh, you know, country or a different place in time, a different context, uh, and then you find it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because all of our findings are context-specific, right? And so I think we need to change the way in which we design nudges and we design interventions because otherwise, you know, the kind of failures you talk about, we're just going to see a
0: lot more of those. The underlining thing, having said that, situation also matters a lot. Uh, I would actually say the situation plan. matters a heck of a lot more yes. than the actual intervention. Talking of nudges only, I have another question. Do you think governments or companies have a responsibility to nudge their subjects at a moral level, given that there might be a conflict of interest? So, great, great question. I
1: think both governments and businesses need to have a very robust understanding of what the appropriate ethics are. And I don't think we have that understanding yet. And I'll tell you what what makes it really tricky to study the ethics of behavior interventions or behavior change compared to any other kinds of interventions, right? So as an experimentalist, one of the things I always think about is when we talk about the ethics of behavior change, What are we comparing it to? What's our control condition, right? So so let's look at something like advertising, okay? What are the ethics of advertising? That's an easier question because you can imagine a world without advertising. So you can imagine a world in which there's absolutely no TV ads, no billboards, right? And, And you can start asking questions such as has the world changed as a result, okay? With behavioral science, you cannot imagine a world without behavioral science. Like, you know, behavior is central to everything we do. Context is central to everything we do, right? And so it makes the question of ethics really tricky because we don't have a good controlled condition, right? Now, having said that, I think there are some simple principles that companies and Governments need to follow. So one really simple principle is this notion of the so-called dichotomy or the so-called divergence between intentions and actions, right? Uh, lots of things where people say they want to do but they don't do because life gets in the way. Uh, I want to save more money, I want to eat healthy food, I want to exercise, all of that good stuff. That's a great domain for interventions, right? Likewise, if you're a for-profit company, the question of conflict of interest is is. Even Stark. And so one of the frameworks I use at my center here at the university simply plots the estimated value arising from an intervention to the company versus to the end user. Right? And we are very happy playing in the top right quadrant. If, if something increases value to you, but also most importantly increases value to the end user, that's great. Okay. But we will never touch anything where a company profits, but not. The, not the end user, right? Now, I think sort of companies can, uh, can look for places where this happens. Uh, I don't think a lot of companies try very hard. Uh, it, it requires some bold thinking, right? But to your central point, I think as long as we have fairness, as long as we have the right degree of transparency, and as long as we protect our, our citizens from harm, I, I think it's, it's possible. And I strongly encourage every policy unit to come up with a robust ethics framework by which to benchmark their interventions.
0: Wow. Now that we have developed some base about behavioral economics, nudges, insights into public policy, let's step into your research about successfully scaled solution need not be homogeneous. You mentioned about heterogeneity um, a moment back. So let's hear uh, something more about this particular research. From you. Sure. So I'll try and give you
1: the three-minute version. We discovered that. Interventions that work really well in the lab don't always translate and don't always scale. And in particular, two or three things could happen. One, uh, the idea that when you design an intervention that is supposed to make things easy for some people, it could actually have the opposite result for other people. Right. So in Mexico, in the study that I told you, if you make the statement attractive so that people pay attention to the information on it, it improves the contribution rate for some people uh, and not for others. The people whose funds are doing well are motivated after seeing that catchy information. Uh, the people whose funds are not doing well are demotivated and actually don't contribute much, right? So, so there's that sort of heterogeneity, right? Uh, there's obviously heterogeneity from the fact that people are different. So, I can come up with an appeal, for example, that uh, that says, say, for your family's future." If you have a family, it makes sense. If you don't have a family, it's, you're gonna dismiss it, right? And you can actually come up with that for any appeal, right? So, any ad, for example, uh, will never make sense to everyone, right? So, so understanding. Who your target audience is and how the appeal could be different, I think, becomes important. And then the third quick thing that I'll highlight is there are often differences in the way in which a study was done in the original trial or pilot to the way it was scaled up. And those little differences could play a big role in the effects. So if I give you, for example, a reminder of how much you have spent using credit cards on the terminal when you're about to make a payment versus via your mobile phone, where it is easier to dismiss notifications, we see big differences in effects. Right, so so in the in the in the research, we're going to talk about what do we learn across a collective uh, family of studies, and we sort of say, well, re, you know, the the key takeaway is, it is really important to test every possible intervention in situ. In other words, in the context in which you are going to deliver the final intervention uh, because otherwise any of those other things could happen that we just spoke about. And just because some intervention worked for somebody else somewhere else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So that, that's sort of the, the, the high level summary of, of that research program. It's, it's more like a meta-analysis and reflection uh, on what we have learned from several different uh, instances of launching these interventions. Talking about these
0: interventions, so does this intervention also apply to health Especially in gyms and eating habits. So this referring to the paper itself.
1: Yeah. So uh, you know the, the, the these sorts of interventions have been applied to all kinds of things. At our center, for example, most of our our work is in three areas. Uh, it's in financial well-being. Uh, it is in preventive health behaviors, be they healthy eating, exercising, you know, healthy lifestyles, mental health, all of those things, and then finally environment-related. Decision making. So we're interested in recycling behaviors and use you know using less plastic, uh, that sort of stuff. Our our, our interest, in, in both in my center as well as as a field, kind of I, I think is, is is vertical. It ranges from individual decisions, uh, but also corporate decisions and and government decisions, right? So for example, in the environment domain. Uh, there's a lot of clever studies being done to show how to motivate people to use less plastic bags or plastic straws, right? But here's the challenge. If there is plastic floating around in the environment, if, if the manufacturer is still going to use it, uh, it just makes it harder for people to control the usage, right? So I think we need to also work on companies and uh, having a broader sort of you know environmental policy document in place. Uh, so, so I think that's the way to think about it, right? It, it start at the lowest level, start with the individuals. But then if it turns out that corporate decisions or government decisions, unfortunately, contribute to the problems, uh, then I think we need to start fixing those.
0: Certainly, sir, health and environment does connect very well with us. So can you help me understand how does all this translate into public policy?
1: G- great question. I, I, I think there are two ways in which behavioral science contributes to public policy. The first one is the easier one. So let me just quickly get to that first. And and then the second one is a bit more challenging, which is the idea of how to best design government programs, right? So so think about any program, uh, be it a farmer subsidy program, be it a uh, health or vaccination program. Oftentimes, the way governments would deal with it is to simply allocate money for those programs. And then it's actually left to the individual agency that runs the program uh, to make decisions, right? One of the projects I'm working on right now with several national governments is on sort of welfare programs, cash transfer programs, right? Uh, And again, the the average government will just allocate cash transfer dollars to a particular program, let's say with the goal of improving sanitation. Uh, And then it's left to the state government or the uh, field agency to decide how to spend that. And, And one of the things we are learning is that the way in which the actual delivery of the program happens, plays a huge role in uh, the efficiency of the program, right? So, I can give you a, a lots of examples, but two quick ones, right? Th- there are some programs that are so called conditional programs, right? Which is, you're, you're low income, I'm going to give you money to do something, uh, let's say, you know, put a toilet in your home or uh, clean drinking water supplies, uh, but you have to prove to me that you're doing it, okay? So, as, as a recipient, the burden of proof is on you. And, and we find, especially in India and, and, and in large parts of the global south, that the moment you put the burden of proof on the recipient, they, they retreat. Right? They'll say things like, oh, like, you know, downstream, there's going to be all kinds of jamelas. Why should I get into it? Right? They just avoid the whole thing. Right? Uh, governments are thinking if, if it, we make it conditional, we can ensure that people actually use it for what we are for what they're supposed to do. But it turns out that's not the case, okay. S- second example is the, the nature in which the money is actually handed out. So for example, in some parts of the world, you actually have to line up in front of your local bank at a special counter to get your cash transfer money, right? Uh, India used to be the same thing. you got a farmer subsidy, you have to go to your local state bank and uh, get the check. And then you know all of the other problems, there's corruption, there's gatekeepers, all of that stuff, right? So. So farmers would say, why get into all of this, right? Adhar has changed all of that. Now the payment has become transparent, uh, has, has become invisible, right? So, so now I can't look at people and see who's getting payments and who's not. And so that social embarrassment that used to come with receiving welfare, that's gone away now. Right? So these are the kinds of things that I think behavioral science can play a huge role in, in terms of how to deliver the program. Uh, and policy needs to start looking at these things because they haven't been doing uh, at this point in time. Right, um, But moving upwards into the policy cycle, I think um, there is another fundamental change that needs to happen, which is the fact that we design our policy under the assumption that people are motivated rational, all, all of the, the above, right? So privacy policy, uh, online privacy, it's a big uh, issue all over the world, right? Most governments assume that if you tell people that, you know, they should reset passwords and set the privacy settings, their job is done, right? Kaam uh, ho That's not true, right? And, and, and in fact, our research shows that most people don't even think about privacy as a risk problem like nobody even understands privacy right the landscape is complex so for example you know with facebook like there was a period of time 5 years back where you could post a photograph not tag people and then you would think I'm, i've done my thing okay uh, this photograph is up there the person is not identified uh, then Facebook comes up with an algorithm that allows them to recognize people. So Facebook can tag that picture, right? So here's what happened. You design, you made a decision as a consumer based on the technology that was available at that point in time. Technology changed, but you're into your previous decision. Okay, that's something that policymakers need to start looking at now. We need to start looking at the fact that, A, you know, these are not rational agents, that consumer protection is more important Than sort of the assumption of rationality Uh, and i don't think we've seen that happen in the policy cycle so i think that's where the next step for behavioral science is is to really bring in that recognition of uh, of limited cognition into the policy cycle
0: do you think nudge can lead society into a situation of surveillance capitalism wherein there is moral polarization or is it like there is welfare and benefit from nudging Should we keep the morality of the nudge aside? I I don't think we should keep it aside. I also don't think
1: that sort of these notions of nudging resulting in surveillance and nanny state and all of that stuff are are true at all. Like, in fact, I'd argue that if any government wants to be a nanny government, they already know information about us, right? I mean, you could argue that tax departments know more about us. And if somebody just accessed all of the tax data, that's... Surveillance 101 right there. Uh, Or Aadhaar knows a lot about us, right? I mean, so so I I actually don't think nudging has anything to do with it, right? But the ethics question is important. I think we have to treat it with the right respect. I think we need to treat individuals with the right dignity. And so we need to be very careful about what kinds of problems we solve uh, with with nudging, right? Uh, I don't, like the moment nudging is used to forward a political agenda, for example, it becomes problematic. If it is used to solve a social problem, that's a different story, right? Uh, So again, back to ethics, I think it's really important for policy units, for governments to have maybe an independent ethics board, bipartisan, tripartisan, you know, that basically says, yeah, this is something we need to do as a country. And and there are so many of those things, Mehul, in like, you know, any country in the world, like sanitation, like that's a no-brainer. Like who doesn't want it, right? It's not a political agenda. Things like tax... Taxes and I mean those we can argue there might be differences, right? But basically like health and sanitation and COVID nineteen compliance, I mean that's a no brainer that I don't think there are any differences across political spectrum. So so those are the kinds of things that I think we should start looking at first. Otherwise you're right, you know these things could spiral out of control.
0: Interesting. Let me put my next question into context. So last week I received an Instagram friend request from a Bitcoin based company asking me to invest into Bitcoins. So the question is, how do you think behavioral economics helps explain the creation of market bubbles and hyped up investments in Bitcoins? You know, uh,
1: Mehul, uh, the human in me says that there is obviously something to anything that a lot of people are doing, but I don't know what it is. The scientist in me says, We've seen a lot of other hype situations happen in the past. It doesn't have to be with Bitcoin, but, you know, we've had hypes about all kinds of things, right? And whether a hype translates into a trend or not is difficult to predict because we just don't have enough data points, right? So I'm going to actually skirt around your question saying, I don't think either as a human or as a scientist, I know enough about the Bitcoin revolution to suggest that it's either here to stay or not. So, uh, you know, like, like, Pujara, I'll put my blade up
0: and just defend your question with no shot. So all of the nudges we talked about are mostly consumption-based nudges. If we talk about the plastic production you mentioned, can we also use nudge on production without having to monetarily disincentivize producers? You can. Um, I'll
1: give you an example uh, from a different domain, which is restaurant hygiene report cards. So in many parts of the world, the health inspector goes to different restaurants and categorizes them in terms of the hygiene uh, into three categories. So in, in Toronto, it is green, yellow, and red, just like a traffic light, right? Now, now, it turns out that a lot of consumers don't actually see those scorecards at all. So when they, they, nobody looks at the scorecard before entering a restaurant and say, ah, this is a green restaurant, so I should go there, right? But because restaurants have to put up the scorecard, they have become more hygienic overall, right? Now, what does that tell me? That tells me that there's an interesting behavioral mechanism here is the moment you create a dashboard for anything, performance on that thing goes up, okay? So with privacy, for example, if you're playing around with developing a dashboard for different websites, like you know, uh, what is this website doing? Here's 10 things they could do to safeguard. Uh, How many of those 10 are they doing? So just having that public website, we believe will create the incentives for companies to be secure. I think it's the same story with plastic, right? If somebody just posted a list of companies and how much plastic they use, I have a feeling companies will be incentivized to change their behavior. So the point is there's a lot of behavioral stuff that works for industry as well. I just don't think we've explored that well
0: enough. I think Greta Thunberg has actually started that revolution up already. Let's see all these companies' figures come in public and then they'll be forced to probably disincentivize their plans, in fact. Two last questions. So, the current debate in India that has been primarily regarding agricultural reforms, do you think policies like agricultural reforms in India can be better presented if they are not introduced as shock therapies, but as incentives rather?
1: Yeah. So again, I'm going to do a little bit of a Pujara and then a little bit of a Rahane on this one, right? Which is, I, I, I don't know enough about all the details underlying the current issues with agriculture. So I'm not going to get into details on that, right? Uh, but I do know a lot about some other details, not in India, but in Canada, about environment protection. So carbon pricing, right? Uh, it's been a big issue here. And... Um, you know, one of the things we learned th- that a lot of people who say that they're opposed to carbon pricing aren't really opposed to it, right? So so we did a simple experiment in which half the people were asked, you know, here's the, here's the government carbon, uh, carbon pricing plan, you know, on the spectrum, how much do you like it, to support it or not? And... Uh, roughly half the people loved it, the other half hated it, nobody in the middle. And then we showed them a little kind of two-minute visual uh, sort of infographic-y animation uh, as to how this works. Okay, We said thank you and all that. Other half saw the film first and then they were asked the same question. Right? Uh, When they saw the film first, what happened was all of their evaluations tended to the mean. So now there was no strong hate or, or love. And I think it's really, a lot of it is the fact that the way in which we present information to our citizens, you know, increases the likelihood that they don't understand it. If they don't understand it, they use for other things, other cues, like, you know, which party has proposed it, and does my favorite film actor support it or not, to make their judgments about the value of the thing. So there is a massive value in actually communicating the policies better. And I think once we solve the communication challenge, I think a lot of these other things
0: We'll if a carbon tax is imposed, would that be beneficial?
1: I, I personally think so. It is, a, it is an empirical question. I think it, it, the devil is in the detail It's in terms of how much is you know, the, the level of the tax and how the cap and trade system is going to work. Uh, but logically, it's, it makes perfect sense. Again, the trick is on how well it's communicated. One of the other things we learned is just calling it a carbon tax, increased resistance, calling it a carbon price improves acceptance. Yes.
0: That's again, a nudge, replace a nudge. framing effect, replace tax with pricing. Yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. The behavioral economics is developing all around. One last question that we have. So when we shared that Dr. Dilip Saman is going to be with us next week, everyone was excited and they wanted to ask one question that has been going rounds. And this question was, Sir, after your engineering degree from India, an MBA from Indian Institute of Management. What made you choose behavioral economics as your specialization when traditional economics was more rewarding at that time? Over to you.
1: So I'll, I'll be honest, in my case, I don't think I actually made any active choices or anything like that. I was always interested in sales and marketing. So my first job after engineering was actually in sales. And I was very interested by the fact that as an engineer, we spent so much time and energy improving the performance of the engine by like 1%, 2% and nobody actually cared about it. So I, I found that, that whole thing like super interesting. And then I spent some time in advertising as well. Uh, so when I went to Chicago to get my PhD, I was honestly kind of clueless uh, as to what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew it was something to do with, with human behavior. And then, you know, once I landed there, I ended up, you know, meeting people like Steve Hoke and Richard Taylor, and and at that point in time, you know, there, there wasn't like my degree wasn't even called behavioral economics because I don't think that label existed back then when I got my PhD. Right, so it was kind of fun to be part of the development of the field. Right, so like I, I remember Richard was thinking about choice architecture back then, but it was never really a formal thing. So, so I don't think I made a choice. I think I just kind of happened to be in the right place. Uh, at the right time but I do think it's a it's a great field to be in now because it is relatively young as an academic discipline and there's just a lot of embrace of of this field uh, uh, both in policy and practice more generally so be curious and uh,
0: the field is waiting for you. Thank you so much sir thank you Dr. Suman, for sharing your knowledge with us and helping our audience gain insights into behavioral economics so this is all for the first episode of Sanatham with Dr. Dilip Saman. We will join you next week, same day, same time, with another legendary economist and new engaging theme. This is your host, Mehul Segal, signing off. Hail economics, hail Hindu.